hi everyone. Uh, welcome to another episode of the Skip Podcast, podcast dedicated to you and your tech career and how to get ahead of it. Today's episode focuses on dense technical subject called equity. Equity means the stock, the options, the RSUs that you have in your compensation package. And I think that it's one of the hardest things to understand, but one of the most important things. I chose to walk everyone through this subject, not because I want everyone to be experts, but I want everyone to go from beginner to intermediate. And I think it's important, especially these days, because valuations of companies have changed so much in the last year. Equity is, for many of you, a huge part of your compensation. And this episode really focuses on private companies. Private companies have stock prices that aren't public. And as a result, it's always really hard to understand how much you're actually making. And more importantly, you don't always know whether the terms that you have are actually going to lead to liquidity or the ability to make money on your stock. And so I've sort of assembled a great team to help us walk through this. Today's episode will focus on the basics, but also the common mistakes that people make, especially when it comes to negotiating offer letters, vesting stock and how to manage exits. These are the areas that when I'm talking to executives and other folks that I coach, they come with all kinds of questions. And it's one of my most important subjects because of the implications around long-term compensation. Now, though this is a technical subject, it's really not designed to replace the professionals that are in your life. The lawyers, the accountants, the financial managers, they're really helpful to understand your personal situation. I'm lucky to be joined by Anthony McCusker and Linda Galligan on this podcast. They both work at Goodwin Proctor, which is a legal firm that represents founders, entrepreneurs, executives, and obviously lots and lots of companies. And they have all types of information around equity, and that's who I go to. And they're going to help explain this very complicated instrument. Maybe, Anthony, you want to start by introducing yourself? Sure. Thanks for having us. We're thrilled to be here with you. My name is Anthony McCusker. I'm a corporate partner at Goodwin Proctor. I co-chair our technology practice and represent companies from brand new startups with a couple founders through public company and everything in between. So sort of guiding through the corporate transactions that occur throughout the life cycle of a company. That's great. Yeah, Anthony and I have known each other for probably too many decades to speak of, but you've both represented me and been one of my guides and Sherpas as I've navigated the tech space. And part of the reason I invited Anthony is because he really educated me about the challenges around compensation, equity, and actually helped me avoid a lot of really important and challenging mistakes. So I'm really delighted to have him here. Linda, maybe you can introduce yourself and explain what you do for Goodwood. Sure. Thanks, Nikhil. Thanks so much for having us. I'm Linda Galligan. I'm a partner at Goodwin. I focus my practice on executive and employee compensation, and I work with companies throughout their life cycle. So everything from pre-funded startups all the way up to multinational public companies and everything in between. Well, I'm so glad to have you on the episode because both of you have helped me so much in my career navigating some of the tricky situations. And my hope is that there's listeners out there staring at an offer right now. Like, let's just take that as this the starting point. 
And equity has so many dimensions that I think it's the thousand questions everyone's afraid to ask. And maybe we'll just start with a really simple example. So, someone calls me and says, hey, I'm thinking about joining Startup X and Startup X is offering me an equity package. And what they mean by that is they've got some stock options that are coming to them. Let's call it 5000 a year. And they're saying that it's going to take four years for me to get my 20,000 stock options. And they're telling me that if all goes well, it's going to be worth a hundred grand. You know, if that's actually the case, I feel like it's a pretty reasonable offer. But the voice in the back of my head is, well, is it worth a hundred thousand? Could it be worth more? Could it be worth less? What is an option? So maybe today we can kind of just like pull this apart between the three of us and try to explain it. So. Maybe I'll start by asking, what is this stock option and how do companies create this ownership set of structures between stock and option, preferred stock? Maybe one of you could help me understand that. So you've sort of set it up well, Mikhail, like the technology or life science or any venture-backed startup will generally have sort of three categories of stock along its journey, preferred stock, common stock, and it'll have a sort of incentive equity, whether that's options or some other form like an RSU. I mean, the companies sell preferred stock to their investors. So venture investors, angel investors, they will generally hold preferred stock. And then the founders, when they start the business, will hold common stock. And then the employees and other advisors along the way will receive common stock in exchange for the options that you've outlined. So on day one, a founder or founding team would own 100% of the company all in common stock and then would ideally sell preferred stock at some point fairly quickly in its journey to preferred investors. And you might have 25 or 30% of the company going to some investors in the form of preferred stock. And the balance would be in the founders with usually somewhere around 10 to 20%, usually kind of 10 to 15, probably a standard of that overall capitalization reserved for an option pool. And the reason that you sell preferred stock to investors, or one of the reasons you sell preferred stock to investors and keep common stock for the team is along that private company journey, you can actually sell the preferred stock for like an enterprise value, if you will, what's the whole enterprise worth. And that preferred stock has rights, preferences, and privileges, things like liquidation preference and voting rights that require their approval for certain transactions, anti-dilution protection, where the common stock doesn't have those things. So the common stock can be valued at a lower level. You know, ideally at the time of an exit, the preferred stock converts to common stock, and that's probably more complicated than what we need to talk about here. But in kind of a perfect world, the common and the preferred at the time of an IPO, or certainly at the time of an IPO, but time of an exit would be equal in value. But early on, because of those, the lack of those rights, preferences, and privileges, the company has the ability to set a lower value on that common stock. Then there's some tax rules that require you to go get a professional valuation that would help you price those options. But oftentimes in early stage startups, you might have kind of an 80 or eight, even 85% discount to that preferred stock price on the common. And then that differential will close as the company becomes more mature, gets closer to a potential exit. And on the day of an IPO, you would, in perfect world, have it be no differential is what a valuation expert would tell you. So the ability to price your options at 20% or 15%, even sometimes 
of what that preferred stock value is allowing you to give a real incentive to your team. Got it. And that's really the whole rationale around why you have a common and a preferred construct. Right, right. No, that's really helpful. Maybe if I kind of repeat back what I'm hearing is there's sort of two things that are worth understanding. One is any company that's going has sort of these three blocks of comp- of equity. It has this preferred concept, which went to investors that effectively gave cash, let's say, in most cases, back to the company. It has the founders, which has a block of stock, and that's usually this kind of common. And then it has a bunch of options in most cases that are given over to the employees. And so this is sort of a piece of this sort of pie chart that is the ownership of a company. And then the second thing you said is that, well, an investor that puts in dollars, they have some rights that the employees don't have. And there's some risk that the employees don't necessarily get a return and that the investors might. And so that is what causes the investor to pay a dollar and the employee to maybe have the same instrument that's less. And it's possible that they don't end up getting the ownership percentage of what they think they're going to get. We'll talk about that in a bit. But I think that the bigger point is that there's a gap. And the earlier the company, the bigger that gap usually is between the price that you end up having for the options that an employee has and then the price that an investor pays. And that price is set by a third party typically. And I think that we call that that 409A price that I think is that's you right. know, constantly, I'm sure all these folks are hearing 409A price. So that's the price that the company, the accountants, if you will, go out and price the entity. And it's this sort of discount against what the, maybe the investors have paid. So I know that's a little bit complicated, but it's important for us as sort of grounding for today's conversation of Okay, going back to my example, I'm getting 5,000 shares and they're telling me that every year I'll get it for four years. But before we go into sort of like the value that, maybe Linda, this is a question for you is like, what questions do you typically want to make sure that the employee just sort of understands when they're looking at compensation? If I hand you this offer letter, what are you going to tell me I need to make sure I ask about? Sure thing. So I think just one concept I think we should throw out there. It's kind of a basic one, but just to understand even what an option is, if your offer includes a grant of a stock option, because sometimes people look at it and think, oh, that's my stock. That's my equity. But an option just gives you the right to buy that stock. And that 409A price is the price you pay. So obviously, if you get into a company really early, it's going to have a very low strike price. As the company matures and grows, that strike price goes up. But that really changes the economics of your option, because if you think about it, you kind of peg the value that you're coming in at when you join the company, and you're going to get the appreciation over that, but you don't necessarily get credit for the value that's created before you join. So it's kind of important to understand the economics of how just an option works. Well, and then just on that, Linda, can I ask a company for like what that price is, the 409A, when I get that offer letter? Most of the time, I don't see that price written down. Is that a valid question? It is. And I think that most companies would eventually share that information. You know, if you're being hired into a senior level position, it's a certainly a valid question and something that companies would normally share. But again, it's somewhat sensitive mm-hmm. and not something that companies want to share and have broadly distributed. So once you get down the path of negotiating an offer, I think it's a valid question to ask. 
Got it. So that's one question. What are the other kind of questions that I want to know? The other thing is that, and I think you phrased this offer in a really good way that it was explained to the candidate as something with some tangible kind of dollar value. Because what happens sometimes is that people may look at the share number, right? Like I have an option for a thousand shares or an option for a million shares. And it can be a little bit confusing and sometimes misleading, right? Because the number of shares that will be covered by your option is really just what's your slice of the pie. And maybe that pie only has, you know, 10 slices and maybe it's already been sliced up into a million. So it's really helpful to understand, especially for an earlier stage company, what percentage of the equity does that represent? Because at the end of the day, the thousand share option could be a greater percentage than the million, depending on the overall cap table of the company. You'd be shocked by how few people actually ask that question. And the question we're asking is, what's the price and then what percentage of the company is this grant representing? And I think that the concern is that companies might say, hey, you know, that's confidential and it's 20,000 options and that's what you should think about. How do you push on this point? Because 20,000 options might be worth a lot more than a million options for a different company, going back to your example. So how do I make sure that I know what I'm getting? It's most relevant for an earlier stage company, right, that still thinks about its cap table in terms of percentages. You're talking about public company, it's totally irrelevant. And even for a later stage private company that has a significant valuation, I don't think it's helpful to know that your grant is 0.00001% of the company, right? Later stage companies tend to think about grants more in a dollar value. But for that earlier stage company, I do think it's important. And again, if you're being hired into a senior position, it's not a ridiculous ask to understand how the cap table works, maybe not to see the cap table, but to understand what percentage of the company your grant would represent. And Anthony, going back to sort of the basics of options, why do companies just not give stock? Why do they have this convoluted mechanism that Linda mentioned, which is there's a price. And when you actually get to the moment of selling, you have to factor that price in and it's not zero. And so now it's like, part of this calculation? Are they just trying to be mean? Or what causes a company to go from just giving stock to options in general? It's tax-driven. So if you were to give someone, you know, in your example, 5,000 shares a year, the value of that, let's say it's $5,000, they'd have income of $5,000 for that year. And so the value of what you gave them would be taxable. That might be okay when you're really small and you're giving someone $150 of income or something along that line, or even maybe $5,000 because they own the stock and they don't pay an exercise price. They just pay taxes on the value that they received. That may work early, but later on as the values get real high and you're starting to hire lots of people at all sorts of levels within your organization, that's just a tax challenge. And so companies have sort of long, long time ago developed this concept of we can give someone an option that they can have the benefit to buy that and they could do it early, right? Sometimes, especially for senior executives, you might be able to say, one of the things I want to negotiate for, and we can probably talk about this later, is I want to be able to exercise even before I vest instead of vesting like at the end of that one year that you described and then exercising those shares. I might be able to exercise early 
And then I own the shares, assuming that I continue to vest and perform for that four-year period. I would own those shares for forever, and I would have started my long-term capital holding period in the US, at least early on when you first bought them, and that's a benefit. But I could also wait, besides when I realized that there's real value in this business. So there's two things there. I think one is that if you didn't get options and the company just gave you stock, they're giving you ownership of the company every month, but you're having to pay tax and it's not liquid. So you actually have a company that theoretically the value is on paper, and yet you have a tax liability, which is why companies move to options relatively quickly. So that makes sense. The second point you're making, which is for those people that are familiar with public company equity, typically those are coming in without a lot of ways to save money on tax. Those are sort of just coming in pretty straight. I think that if you're early into a company and the company suggests to you, or even maybe as an executive, you negotiate this early exercise, I think that maybe some of the listeners have heard this 83B term that's been used as part of that. You're suggesting that, hey, that might be wise because it really reduces your potential tax, but then you have to take the possibility that you're buying this stock up front and it may not be worth it. So how do you advise your clients around this sort of early exercise? Is it important? Is it not? When does it usually make sense? When does it not make sense? I'm happy to take that one. I'll get to that in a sec, but I just also wanted to mention on why options. There are some who will say, I mean, this is not like a legal point, but it's that it's the right incentive right? That you want people to be incentivized to grow the value of the company over their exercise price. So that's another reason why some companies may choose options because they just think it aligns everybody in growing value on early exercise and 83B options. So we see a lot of companies offer early exercise options, meaning it's an option that can be exercised, meaning you can pay your exercise price and convert from being an option E to a stockholder even before that option is vested. So you could join the company, you know, on December 1st, get your option on December 2nd and exercise the whole thing that day, even though you've been an employee for one day. It's really a tax play why you would do that. And typically you'd only see it with a low exercise price. The benefit, so when you exercise an option, that date of exercise is going to be the first potential tax event for you. If it's an ISO, it would be potentially AMT. If it's a non-qual, it would be income tax. And the tax exposure is on the spread of the option. So the amount by which the fair market value has exceeded the exercise price at the time that you exercise. So in Anything else, so the later event with your option could be after you've exercised, you hold shares and you sell those shares. That's your next tax event, but that's going to be capital gain. It's only really an exercise that you have that AMT or income tax exposure. So what some people want to do is to exercise while the value is still low and there's maybe no spread so that you kind of lock in a small or no amount of income or AMT at the time of exercise. And then future appreciation when you're able to sell those shares, if you are in the future, will be all long-term capital gain. That doesn't happen automatically just by exercising an option, though, that's unvested. If you exercise a vested option, that's how it works. But for an unvested option, 
if you want that result, you need to make something called an 83B election. 83B gets its catchy name from 83B of the tax code. 83A says, hey, if you exercise for unvested shares, you're not taxed until you vest. That would be a pretty bad result. So 83B says, nope, tax me when I exercise, even though this is for unvested shares. So the 83B election allows you to bring that income or AMT event into the year of exercise and then also lets you start that capital gains holding period for the shares so that when and if you're able to sell those shares, it should all be long-term or short-term capital gain, depending on how long you've held. There's maybe some other non-legal benefits why people may want to exercise and be an actual shareholder as opposed to an option E. But the main reason why people would early exercise is because of that potential tax benefit. But like I said, if you want to crystallize that benefit, you've got to make the 83B election. And it's a weird filing. It's like you have to go back in a time machine to like the 1970s or 1980s because there's no electronic filing of an 83B election. It's something you have to send in to the IRS within 30 days after you exercise an early exercise option. It's a hard deadline. For a lot of other things with the IRS, you can pay your taxes late and just pay some penalties. There's no like penalty or correction. It's just you missed your 83B election and now you've missed out on that benefit of early exercising your option. Maybe it sounds a little bit more complicated than it is. My sense is that when you're a founder and you're early into a company and the price spread is relatively low and the dollars are very small, like in my example, maybe you're handed 1% of the company in exchange for employment, you're going to get it over four years and the stock is at micro pennies. And at that stage, a founder as an early employee, I think almost all you know, recommendations is to go ahead and file the 83B. It's not a lot of money. And what it does is it converts these options to essentially stock, but it's unvested. So you don't actually own it, but it starts the clock and you learn about registered mail at the post office for the first time. They send a little envelope back and it's really, really helpful. And 83Bs can actually be helpful for the listeners out there when they receive early advisory options to all of these sort of options that exist at the beginning make sense to sort of do this. I think as the companies start getting further along and you're thinking about exercising, dollars are more significant. There might be a spread because it's not the day that you exercise might be or later. That's when I usually suggest to people talk to a, like their actual accountant or find someone that can advise them. And the risk is, of course, you're putting money into the company, but it may not work out financially. And I know there are lots of examples of people who have done both mistakes. One is they didn't exercise their founder's stock, and then they ended up paying much higher taxes. And I think both of you probably have examples. I have examples of this in my career. And then there's examples of folks that have exercised, and then the stock plummets, and oh boy, I'm not sure that I'll end up breaking my money back. And it's quite hard to recover that in terms of loss. And so those are the two notes around exercise. But I think that probably covers the third point. If we go back, we said, well, let's make sure that you understand the price. Let's make sure you understand the percentage. And then let's think through whether there's options around tax savings, particularly around early exercise. Is there anything else, Linda, that comes to mind that you'd want to make sure that for our kind of fictitious 
offer that you're kind of understanding when it comes to this option grant? I think it's just to make sure or validate that the rest of the terms are kind of, quote, standard, right? Does most companies have a four-year vesting period, a one-year cliff, and then monthly? Like, is that the vesting or does it have something that's more unusual? And then also looking at exercise periods, like when can you exercise the option? And if you decide to leave the company and you have some vested options, how long can you exercise for? So to kind of look at some of those other option terms to see if they're kind of standard or if there are some things you'd want to push back or negotiate around. Let's talk about the exit case, because I think that's probably the one that comes up more commonly. Most people are in a position, especially with the market the way it is, that there's a chance that they'll leave the company and the company won't be public. And so the challenge with options is you have an option to buy, but getting liquidity, actually selling them requires someone to buy them. And that might be through an acquisition or going through a public offer. That, those are the two common cases. There are some edge cases. And in that situation, I can imagine myself in my example, I've got 20,000 options and I'm two years in, I decide this is not the company for me. And then I end up leaving and all of a sudden, I start realizing that those options aren't like stock that I can carry with me. So can you just walk me through like this scenario and what happens here? Sure. So if you leave before you've vested, that any unvested options just go away automatically. And if you had early exercised them and you were a stockholder, the company would typically give you your money back and take those unvested shares back. For an option that you haven't exercised yet and that's vested, normally you're going to have a shorter period of time to exercise that option. That's called the post-termination exercise period. And the most common post-termination exercise period is 90 days or three months. So it's important to understand that because you know, you've had this option for a couple of years. Hopefully the value of the company has appreciated. So you have this option that's in the money. but now, if you don't exercise it within three months, it's going to go away because of that. And maybe there's a barrier to coming up with the exercise price. If you joined a company at a later stage and you have a significant exercise price, but even if you don't, maybe the option's in the money, so you're going to have a significant tax event. And nobody I know gets too jazzed about having dry taxes on exercising an option. So you may not want to do that or you may not be able to afford the taxes. So because of that, Sometimes people negotiate or companies offer a longer post-termination exercise period. This gets talked about a lot. I and mean, there have been like some sort of trends that started and then stopped or pulled back. So I will say, based on what I see, most companies still stick to that default of a 90-day post-termination exercise period, although there are some exceptions. But it's a good thing to ask about as you're going into a company about whether you could get longer. The longest you can get is up to the original expiration date of the option. Most options have a 10-year life. So you can theoretically get all the way up. If you stayed for two years, you could get another eight years to exercise. What's negotiated is usually something in between that, the ultimate expiration and something sooner. But it's an important business point that you may not be thinking about as you're going into a company, but can really be disappointing when you leave if there are challenges to exercising and you have a short time to do it. 
This is the thing that scares me the most right now with offers. Take these growth companies that have raised a fair amount of capital. Let's say they're hiring out a product. And the person comes to me and says, look, I've got this relatively large offer for half percent, one percent of the company. And they were a billion dollar company and they have a pretty high four or nine A price. And so my observation is it's going to take hundreds of thousands of dollars to exercise those options. Well, it's not necessary. Maybe you're not trying to save taxes and you're thinking about the upside, and so it's fine. But you know, two years in and they decide to leave, then they're in this very awkward stage where they can't afford to take out the dollars and buy those options. They might have seen an uptick in price or perhaps even lower, but they stand if they don't exercise 90 days later, which is a very common scenario, they just lose everything. So all the equity that they made, they have nothing to show for it. Maybe, Anthony, why do companies have a short window and why is it that this is a tough negotiation to extend it? I've heard lots and lots of things about this. So the 90-day period is what governs ISOs. So there's two types of options, not to overcomplicate things. There's ISOs, incentive stock options, and those are generally given to employees, and the tax code allows you to give those to employees. And then there's something called a non-qualified stock option or an NSO, and those are just generically more often given to advisors, consultants, board members who aren't employees. And then the ISO rules, and ISOs have a beneficial tax that comes along with them. And the ISO rules provide for a 90-day exercise period post-termination. And if you were to extend that, you actually are giving them an NSO or converting their ISO to an NSO and foregoing the tax benefits that the tax code provides for ISOs. So for that reason, companies sort of default to the 90 days so they can preserve that benefit. You know, it's a little off topic, but like a lot of options never ever get that benefit because you have to hold your option and your stock once you exercise it for two years, I think it is, Linda, right? So two years from grant and one year from exercise. And one year from exercise. So a lot of times the people are selling and not getting that benefit anyway, but that's why you have the 90-day period. And then the second question you asked around why companies sort of resist changing it is one, it's best to keep it in there if you want to have the ISO preservation. And then to the point Linda was making, understanding that on the way in is key because that's probably your point of highest leverage. If you wanted to say, hey, look, if I depart, I want to have something more than 90 days. I want up to the 10-year period from the date of grant, or I want you know a year or two. These negotiations tend to be a year or two years is where people end up getting to. Now, it's not unheard of, but it's not super common to have the full 10-year period. And so on the way in, if you negotiated that, that's probably a place that you can get some leverage. On the way out, who knows what your leverage is? Who knows why you're leaving? And there may be other things that you'd rather have set so you can negotiate instead of this at that time. Yeah. And maybe, Linda, this is the core question. I think my advice to people is that sometimes people get so fixated on the share count. Hey, let's make sure I get as many options as possible as part of this offer. But this note on there's a chance that I can't afford it and yet I only have 90 days and there's a pretty good chance that the company will be private even when I exit if the company is really early and the market's the way it is. So I almost feel like negotiating this is very worth understanding and at least asking about 
But in your experience, both helping executives as well as helping companies, is it common for companies to give on this or to have distinct policies depending on certain individuals? And how have you seen it? Is it a 10%, 50%, or 90% chance that, that folks are going to be able to make on a concession here? It's really all over the place. Like there are other terms that I can tell you really easily what the market is, but this one's a little bit all over the place because there are some kind of competing inputs. So I agree that 90 days started because it was an ISO rule and then it just kind of became the default and it's what companies did for a very long time. The other side of that is there is a little bit of a benefit to a company when someone has an ISO because when an employee exercises an ISO, a company doesn't have to do any tax withholding. And if someone exercises an option more than 90 days after they leave, then it's taxed as a non-qual. And so a company has to figure out like, how in the world do we do tax withholding for this former employee and remit taxes? So could you do that on a one-off basis? Sure. It's hard to do it at scale. And every company's different. Some of the clients that Anthony and I work with like to kind of have standardized terms for everybody. So whether you're an executive or a new hired kind of junior engineering person, your terms are pretty much the same. And so it doesn't feel great to some companies to say, okay, well, these senior people with larger grants get a longer post-termination exercise period, but more junior people don't. And so if we do it for everybody, then we have this kind of administrative headache of trying to figure out how to do tax withholding for everybody. So there's some trade-offs. I tend to agree that you have the most leverage as you're coming in. So it's certainly worth asking for. And there are lots of companies that do it and some companies that make exceptions for executives, not so much because they're executives, but because they have larger grants, right? So the burden of exercising is more significant, but there's no clear trend, at least in my mind. The only thing I'd add to that, and like Linda said, it's all over the place. You're also going to see varying degrees of sophistication among the employers on this topic, right? So you'll have people, offerees or new employees that'll ask about it, and the company just hasn't even thought about it yet for, they just haven't experienced it. And so that creates a challenge too for your new hire that's trying to get this because it's important to them and people running the business haven't just even really thought about it or had to experience it before. Now, let's take the flip side. Let's say, going back to your example, Anthony, where you have low leverage, let's say I'm advising an executive that calls me and says, I'm in the process of transitioning and I see a 90-day window and frankly, can't shell out the kind of money and the tax consequences are substantive, kind of the scenario that you both described. I stand to lose this comp and obviously it's big portion of why I joined. And so I'm feeling really bad about it. Are there any credible options for this person to sort of retain or hold on to the comp? What could they ask the company? And if the company says no, what choices do they have? You should ask for sure. And you oftentimes see a lot of CEOs or founders that say, hey, your contribution was good. I feel bad that you have this window. It's a little self-reflected because you're quitting, but I feel a little bad that you're in this position. So I'm going to ask the board to extend. And boards tend to defer to the CEO on those sorts of calls. But there are people out there that think, hey, this is kind of the deal, right? We want these people to get us through the next level of scale or through an exit or whatever it may be. And so there's varying responses. If the company were to say no, what you end up seeing people do is try to, can I get a loan? And 
again, you're paying, if you have AMT or a tax on this, you're paying not just the exercise price, but then the tax on the difference between your exercise price and then the current fair market value at the time. And sometimes that number is even bigger than the exercise price. And so people sometimes try to get loans for it. You see sometimes people will go and try to sell stock. They'll try to arrange a way for selling into a private transaction to someone that wants to own the stock of this business, selling some of the stock they hold so that they can use those proceeds to pay the exercise and the tax. When the company says they can't accommodate you, those are probably the two things we see most often. Got it. The other thing that I see happen sometimes is that people will just exercise a portion of the option. It's not all or nothing. You don't have to exercise it for all the shares. And sometimes there is like a financial reason why you can't or you're not comfortable exercising the whole thing. You'll at least hold some of the shares and hope for a great exit. But it's not an all or nothing proposition. Yeah. So this is one of the things that you both have taught me about is when is the right time to ask some of these questions is really important. And I think that when the relationships are right at the beginning and everyone's excited, you have just more opportunity to just say, hey, if things don't work out in my situation, maybe it's worth looking at working through those rainy day scenarios. And companies might be more interested in doing that than if things are at a position where you're leaving and they want you to retain or maybe things didn't work out and they're in the process of working a termination. When I've been in this situation and I've been on the other side of the table advising, there's a lot of people that are like, oh, it's terrible that the company has decided you're no longer the right person for the gig. You should lawyer up and you should really go to town and really like fight them tooth and nail because this feels like this is an unfair situation on exit. But at the same time, when you're describing this sort of, well, maybe the CEO is going to be kind to you. Maybe the board is willing to do things. You sort of need a little bit of good weather and some luck because you don't always have leverage. And so maybe this is a generic question, Linda, but when people come to you and they say, the company walked me out the door today, or they've decided I no longer can work there because the company is restructuring, or maybe the CEO doesn't like me or whatever the situation what tools do they have and how do you suggest they go about that discussion? Yeah, so it kind of depends on what the circumstances are. Most of our, like our clients are good actors, right? So people come and go and there's no kind of ill will. I think if an executive came to me with that scenario, I'd make sure that they feel like they were treated overall fairly during their tenure at the company. And then I agree that exit negotiations tend to go smoothest when you work out the economic pieces in a really collaborative way. Any company, I think, reacts a little bit differently when you have your lawyer approach them because then it's like, whoa, what's happening here? And they, of course, want to then protect the company, you know, and like focus on just negotiating a quick exit. And if you feel like overall you were fairly treated at the company, it's best just to have a conversation and lay out what's important to you because your circumstances may be different. Some people don't have challenges with exercising. You may have an event coming up in your life where you know, hey, I, it's going to be easy for me to exercise six months from now. Can I just get a little more time and just kind of lay it out there so that you can come up with hopefully a result that works for both you and the company? 
Yeah. And that's been my experience too. I know maybe because of some of the coaching and coaxing that the firm has suggested is that I've always felt like now looking back in the rearview mirror that I've always gotten a better outcome when I've been focused on collaboration and accepting that where you have leverage, where you don't, you know, employment situations are at will and they go for a few years and it's really common for chemistry fit to not work out. And I think that the hard part for people is to realize that you always assume that your employment is based on your competence. And then you're like, well, no, no, I'm competent and you don't see me. But the reality is that it also, especially as you get more seniors based on fit and need, you may be incredibly successful at your next and previous world, but you know it's not necessarily the time to fight. And that, I think, is an important piece that I think that there's stories of people that go to town that tend to get a lot of press and then the 90% of people that get better off when they work on the same side of the table. I think that is, again, it's like not a legal thing. It's kind of how do you get your head around this transition that you may not have planned? It's funny, like it's often like the it's not you, it's me. But like a lot of times that's the case. I think I've mentioned to you that I have a sister who's a marketing professional and she works with technology companies. So she moves around a lot, right? In, I think certain roles, you know, as companies change strategy, sometimes people just move on and it's just understanding that it's Again, it has nothing to do with your competence. Somebody's just going in a different direction and you can land someplace else really great. Yeah, absolutely. What I'd love to understand, you know, as we kind of think through the final ends of this podcast is less about someone looking at a new offer, more about someone who's entering the new year, a little bit worried about their current offer. If you're in a public company, it's pretty obvious when you look out and you see the stock price and the market's taken a hit this past year, you know kind of where you stand. You know exactly how much you stand to earn and maybe perhaps how much you thought you were going to earn when you joined or as you've been investing. But it's a lot harder to understand that in privately held companies. And you can kind of guess that the market's not quite as strong as it was. And you might maybe look at a public company in your sector and see it's down 70, 80%. Companies are making offers to new employees at their past prices. Employees are told, just hold it out. The market's going to recover. Maybe if you were to stay on the side of the employee, is there a risk that I might not be able to make any money for my equity? Let's take a specific scenario. I joined and I had a good chunk of the company and the price to the valuation of the company was very high. Let's say it was multiple billions of dollars. Now I know the sector is down and I'm one, one and a half year into my stock vest and I have these options accruing. Is there a risk that I might not be able to get any money for this, even if the company was to exit in a couple years? How do you think about this drop in valuation when it comes to existing comp? There is real risk in private company scenarios that your common stock would be underwater. You know, we talked sort of a little bit at the outset that some of the rights that preferred stock has, one of those is liquidation preference, which means the investors, the preferred stock gets some amount of money before the common stock get anything. In successful outcomes and the market we've had in the last handful of years, it's quite common for the common and the preferred to get the same amount. But in those downside scenarios that you describe, hey, we thought we were worth a couple billion, now we're worth a lot less and we sell the business, it's very possible that the preferred stock get their money back and there's not 
either anything or very little left for the common stockholders. The other piece that the risk that you have is even if there is money left for the common, you have an option that was priced at the $2 billion valuation. So it has, call it a price of $3 a share. And the exit or the current valuation, then the company exits at this current valuation, let's say is at $1.50. So you have to make a decision. Is it worthwhile to exercise for $3 to get $1.50? The answer is no. And there's probably lots of examples where it's a little closer. You're exercising and you just don't know how the outcome is going to come, but you know it's a lot lower. And so you have kind of risk of the preferred stock getting either all of the proceeds or a majority or a supermajority of the proceeds leaving very little for common or your common stock just being at an exercise price, your stock options being at an exercise price that's or higher than the current valuation. How do you find out? So I'm year and a half in and I worry about potentially the investors taking the lion's share or I worry that the company might not be valued from the price that I was granted, even though there was quite a spread at the time. Can I ask or do people respond? Like, do the financial teams like openly discuss this with employees? I think you can ask. I think it would be a fair answer by the executive team or the CEO to say, look, because a lot of companies that were valued very highly over the last few years raised lots and lots of money. And so they're not looking to raise money right now. They're not looking to sell because the valuations are down. They're going to work on product, work on sales and customer success and get to a place when they exit and hope that the valuation is different. And so I think some version of that answer is probably what you'll receive in a lot of companies. But I think it's a fair ask of how do we feel our company is situated based on valuations and amounts we've raised and where we might go now. I think those are fair questions. The other piece that your followers should know is that those 409A valuations that you talk about, and like Linda said, the snappy name of 83B is also the same reason you have a snappy name of 409A. It's the Internal Revenue Code section. But Internal Revenue Code section 409A says that those valuations on how you price options, they're valid until either something material happens or 12 months. And so even if there's nothing material like no financing, no huge customer thing, no big acquisition that you did, if just nothing material happens, you're just kind of doing ordinary course for the course of that 12 months. At that end of that 12 months, you'd have to go get a new valuation. And so that is a point of like, oh gosh, it used to be $3, now it's $1.50 at which we're issuing options. I see. So you're suggesting that, look, if you wait this out and you just monitor the 409A price, Companies are essentially over time going to make that accurate. And that process is not something that company determines internally. It's done by a third party. So this piece of data will help you get a sense of does the external and auditors feel good about your price? And if it turns out that you have a 409A price at $5 and the valuation came down at 25 cents, then you'd be worried that you'd have to work a really long time before you even have a dollar for your options. Do you think that most companies would probably go through a 409A re-evaluation this year? Well, yeah, I think most companies that have been around and are issuing options will have to just, by definition, will get a new 409A in that 12-month period. You know, And then you cut over to repricing, which is a bit of a different topic, is would companies sort of adjust their underwater options to that new price? 
And I think that depends, right? The example you gave, $5 to 25 cents, I think most companies would see that and say, geez, we're going to have a revolt on our hands if the people at $5 see their new colleagues getting options at 25 cents, whether you see a mass exodus or a revolt. So we should fix that. I think if the example were, hey, it was $5 and now the new price is $480, you'd say, we're going to get back above $5. Like, you know, everyone relax. There's lots of stuff in between there that's, I think, a little bit harder. But we are seeing companies in this market repricing, trying to give that benefit, pass along the new benefit of the lower price to their teams. You are seeing that and you'll probably continue to see it into next year. I'd also add to that, there are some tax reasons why you really can't continually reprice the same option. So usually you can do it like once is all right. And I only mention that because if you are the person who, you know, has the $5 strike price and now there's a 25 cent of fair market value to just like you can relax a little bit because the company probably wants to wait. Like if they think the next valuation is going to be 10 cents, they'd prefer to reprice it then right? rather than just repricing when they feel like they haven't quite hit the bottom. And a lot of times those valuations are tied to what the market's doing overall, which we could know when that's going to turn around. A little hard to predict, but I do think companies tend to be a little bit thoughtful in trying to wait to reprice until they think they have a pretty low 409A. That makes sense. And I know this was a detailed topic, but one, I just wanted to sort of summarize where we ended up. I mean, this is one of the more complicated area. Maybe we scratched the surface on a lot of the common questions, but between sort of understanding the price and the percentage of the company, understanding these gotchas around tax and early exercise, understanding these exit windows and how to think about potentially losing stock and what choices you have if you find yourself in that. And then thinking through how the stock may have fluctuated both directions, up and down, and how that might impact your compensation. Anthony McCusker, Linda Galligan, thank you, thank you so much for your help. I know that this is not legal advice, but common questions that I think all of our listeners may be hitting at some point down the road. And so I appreciate your help today and clarity on some of these really complicated topics. For folks that have questions, you know, we want them to submit to the podcast, but also when people come to you with specific challenges, and there's so many specific scenarios, what guidance do you have as to who should they talk to and how do they find help and should they be actually talking to folks at these important times? I think they should absolutely find advisors. You can find lawyers, you can find us, you can find other lawyers that do a lot of this work. You can find accountants, wealth managers are usually pretty good at it as well. And if you're talking to an accountant or a wealth manager and you need a lawyer, they usually have them within their network that they can get to them. But I think having the answers and being armed with it, you were saying earlier, when you go into these negotiations, having spoken to someone and know what you want and why it's important, et cetera, I think can be really helpful, not necessarily using those people on as the front line, but having them be able to give you the ammo that you need for when you're going into those discussions, I think it's helpful. And we talk to people all the time on those sorts of topics. Well, thank you again. And we look forward to seeing you on a subsequent Skip podcast. Thanks for having us. Yep. Really appreciate it. Have a good day. We recorded this session with Anthony and Linda on equity. What 
I realized is that there was one big set of questions that I didn't answer and I didn't really talk about, which was this instrument called private RSUs. And so, in the last few years, a bunch of companies have gotten to unicorn status and employees actually don't get options or they don't get restricted stock. So, they can't file 83B. They work differently than the options and some of the information that we shared here. So, I just wanted to add this information into our discussion. So, private RSUs was designed to have some of the best aspects of stock and options. So, imagine a situation where you receive 20,000 RSUs. And RSUs, you should think about just like stock. They work like stock in that they vest over a same period of time, like say four years. So, 20,000 shares will go over four years. You get 5,000 every year and maybe broken into monthly increments. When you leave the company, if the company is liquid, you could actually sell them for whatever the price is, and you don't have to pay for the option. There is no strike price. There is no 409A price in the same way. And what the company usually does is says, well, we believe our RSU price is $5, and we think we're going to give you $100,000 worth of stock. And that's going to translate five times 20,000 RSUs is $100,000. And the nice thing is that if the company went to 10, you made a little bit more. And if the company's stock went down, unlike options where you're underwater because you have to buy them, you don't have to buy them. So you might make a little less, but at least you make some money on your equity. So this is a great instrument. And what's interesting is the IRS actually allows you to vest these without paying tax. And the reason why is that, you know, technically you're not receiving the stock until you get to exit. And so what that means is if the company goes public, they'll go in and they'll say, well, two years ago we gave you a grand, and two years later the company went public or got sold. Here we'll give you half now on one day. And then they take all the taxes. And so it's not great to save taxes, which is why a lot of companies stick with options. And they're kind of a pain to administer. So a lot of companies just don't want to do the overhead. But the advantage is that you don't have to pay taxes as you're vesting. So it has that aspect like options are great because you can keep getting equity and monthly vesting and you don't pay taxes, but it's kind of like you own a stock. And for most cases, this is just a positive instrument. So I really liked receiving private RSUs, especially when the company had a really high stock price and they were really valuable. Now, the two gotchas that I just want to flag for the listeners out there is one gotcha is that let's say someone comes along and an investor and says they want to invest in the company and they're willing to take common stock. Well, the advantage of that, and we've talked a little bit about this in the episode, is that investor can actually take some of the options that, that employees have. And the employee can exercise it and they can turn it around and sell it to this new investor. And the investor gets common stock and the company employees actually have liquidity well before it goes public. And this is great. The secondary market sale can be really helpful. And we talked about it also can be helpful in securing equity on exit if you had to grab it before the options expire. But can't do that with RSUs. RSUs, as we said, don't really become equity until you get to an exit event, not just an event where someone's willing to pay. So you can't really transfer RSUs. So that's one thing to worry about if you have a choice between these instruments. And then the second and the more concerning is a bit of an obscure thing that I came across, which is like any instrument, RSUs expire. That means that let's say seven years from the day that you start with a company, those RSUs will end up terminating. 
meaning if you're not public or you're not sold by then, they'll zero them out. Company can't do anything about that. And so this expiration applies whether you're a current employee or you've left the company. So imagine a scenario where you've joined a company, you worked there for three years, you leave. Well, it's amazing is the RSUs don't expire until seven. So you've got four more years. Unlike options, you don't have to negotiate a window. But boy, if that company doesn't go public, you're in trouble. You've lost all of that equity. And you can't do much about it. The reason why is because the IRS feels like, well, when you're vesting, we're not getting any tax. And since we're not getting any tax, there has to be some risk of forfeiture. There has to be some reason. And what you as an employee say is, look, there's a possibility in seven years, I don't even get my money. And so the IRS says, okay, got it. We'll wait until we collect taxes when the company goes public. But seven years from now, it also may be eliminated. And that's enough to sort of survive the IRS test. So make sure if you're looking at private RSUs in your offer that you think about the fact that you're not going to be able to sell to another investor during the time until the company goes public. And there is a chance that you could lose it after seven years or whatever the term is on expiration. So I just want to make sure that we introduce that before we exit this episode. And for those of you that found this episode to be helpful, but a bit technical and a little hard to follow, I don't blame you. This is a really detailed subject, and sadly, we just scratched the surface. Stay tuned for my newsletter article. If you follow me on Substack and look for the skip, you'll see more information on equity coming next week. And it's a detailed, long-form article around all these different details that we covered here. It's the private RSUs, it's options, it's restricted stock, it's my attempt to explain some of the tax implications, and hopefully you'll find it as a great supplement to the content from today. Thanks for listening to the Skip Podcast. Please share it with your friends, leave a rating and a review. Most importantly, if you have a question on content that we have presented here today or on other topics that I've covered or even things you'd like to hear that relate to career, please find me on Twitter or LinkedIn and I'd love to hear from you. On Twitter, you can find me at Nikhil, N-I-K-H-Y-L. Can't wait to see you in two weeks and thanks again for all your help in supporting this podcast.